Welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, December 17th. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, the government's new position on the war in the Middle East. With the future of Israelis and Palestinians in mind, Canada is joining the international call for a humanitarian ceasefire. Canada breaks from years of policy of voting with Israel and backs a UN resolution for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The move is sparking both praise and pushback. So why did the government back a ceasefire now? And do the feds still think a two-state solution is feasible? Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie will be here for her first interview since that vote, and I'm going to ask her. Then, situation critical. We're going through a tough period right now. We've got to make a number of changes internally. Faced with acute and ongoing staffing shortages, plus an aging fleet, the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy warns it may not be battle-ready next year. How quickly can recruitment issues be resolved and what impacts could defense budget cuts have? We'll speak to the head of the Navy, Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, coming up. Plus, that's a wrap. I wish everybody in this chamber a very Merry Christmas, a very happy holiday season. The House of Commons rises with MPs not set to return to Parliament Hill until the new year. What did the federal parties get right and wrong in 2023? The Sunday strategy session will be here to dive into their hits and misses just ahead. Let's start today with the fallout over Canada's changing position on the Israel-Hamas war. Facing weeks of calls to do so, the federal government here is now calling for a ceasefire, a move that is drawing both support and backlash. On Tuesday, Canada issued a joint statement with Australia and New Zealand calling for quote, efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire. It's the first time the government used that word, ceasefire, when talking about the conflict. The statement also condemns Hamas, though, and recognizes Israel's right to defend itself within international law. Then, just hours later, Canada also voted in favor of a non-binding resolution at the UN's General Assembly that calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, but does not call on Hamas to lay down its arms. The vote breaks a long-standing tradition of voting with Israel on major resolutions at the UN. We continue to call for a return to humanitarian pauses. We're going to keep uh, participating in urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire, but it cannot be one-sided. Despite adding that conditionality, there was mixed reaction even within the Liberal caucus to the vote. I was very disappointed in the vote at the United Nations. I, I don't think it was consistent with the statement we issued yesterday that imposed conditions on what would it take for a ceasefire to happen. I understand uh, why the government has come to the decision that it has. Uh, what I'm saying is that I have concerns vis-a-vis -vis the UN resolution specifically and areas in which I think it fell short. I am uh, grateful that uh, Canada voted in favor of a ceasefire and, uh, and I hope that Canada will rally international support to protect the innocent civilians being killed in Palestine, in Gaza. For a deeper dive on Canada's position on the war in the Middle East, I'm here with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Hi, Minister Jolie. Great to have you back in studio. Thank you. It's ha I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate you making the time. Mm -hmm. I, I want to start off with the vote at the UN and ask you, yeah. Minister, why did your government vote for an unconditional ceasefire? Well, first and foremost, what we did, and we've been saying it for now a couple of weeks, the violence must stop. And we saw also that the humanitarian pause helped because hostages, nearly half of the hostages, Vashi, were able to uh, be released. And also more humanitarian aid was able to get in Gaza.
And so we came up with this important statement with Australia and with New Zealand, where we said that uh, we needed to have a sustainable humanitarian ceasefire, which was conditional on hostages being released, of course, by a humanitarian aid being able to allow uh, in Gaza and at the same time also foreign nationals including Canadians being able to uh, get out of Gaza. We've also said that Hamas being a terrorist organization should not be involved in any future governance of Gaza because we believe that there is a path towards a two-state solution and we need to make sure that we get to that two-state solution process. That statement you released though as you mentioned makes a ceasefire predicates it on those conditions associated with Hamas. However, at the UN, that's not what happened. There were amendments put forward that stipulated those conditions. Canada supported them, but ultimately Indeed. the UN voted them down. Your government still decided to support the resolution, which was free of any conditions. You did support a vote. You voted yes for an unconditional ceasefire. Why did you not just abstain from that vote? So we also registered an explanation of vote along with our vote which included the conditions which i mentioned so that is why our position at the un is clear we also worked with many other countries including of course australia and new zealand which had come up with the statement to make sure that we had the same type of vote and we voted also uh, along 153 countries that supported it we believe that the next steps should be clear in terms of what can be sustainable peace in the region. For too long, we haven't had the right parties at the table to give the right credibility for the creation of a Palestinian state living side by side in peace and also security with an Israeli state. And I do want to ask you about the feasibility of a two-state solution. But on the vote, just because you say Canada's position is clear doesn't make it so, This you could have abstained from that vote because of your preference to see conditionality attached to Hamas, but you didn't. Canada made a very distinct decision to vote differently than it has in the past when confronted with the same issue. Are you saying that you don't support an unconditional ceasefire, but you did vote for one? I'm saying that we've been clear in terms of calling for a sustainable humanitarian ceasefire uh, with conditions. I've also, I think that we have to take, take stock of the situation evolving. Uh, Vashi, the UN Secretary General did something that was, uh, that hadn't been done since the 70s last week when he called and triggered Article 99 of the UN Charter, calling what was happening in Gaza a humanitarian catastrophe. And so, as a country that believes in multilateralism, we have to take stock of that. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we had a clear position. At the same time, we know very much that this conflict has been a very difficult one to address with many, many subtleties, and that is why we did an explanation of vote. Is it Article 99 that changed the parameters or what informed your ultimate decision? Because there have been calls from those multilateral organizations that you point to for a ceasefire as far back as October 18th when the Secretary General of the UN first called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. On November 6th, the World Health Organization called for an immediate humanitarian uh, ceasefire. That's an entire month ago. Is it just Article 99 that pushed Canada over to that side? I think that the humanitarian pause was important, and the which led to hostages being able to be released and humanitarian aid going in. 
and like I mentioned, the resumption of violence was absolutely devastating. Uh, and afterwards, we saw Israel's resumption of violence or Hamas's. Both parties, and of course, we know that right now, what Hamas is doing is not only holding hostages, but using Palestinians as civilian shields. Also, we know that there was sexual violence on October 7th. They've been also continuing to attack Israel. We know at the core of our foreign policy that first, the right for Israel to exist has been at the core of it, and also the protection of civilians. And so bearing that in mind, we decided to take this decision, which was not an easy one, but which was important as the conflict is pursuing. Do you think that Israel, or is it your view that Israel has breached international law in retaliating in those October 7th terror attacks? The October 7th attacks were one of the biggest terrorist attacks in the world, and definitely the biggest on Israel. And we saw and we heard uh, from different testimonies of, of hostages, of, of families of hostages, uh, it was absolutely horrific. And that's why it was important that we stood up, and we still do, in terms of uh, supporting Israel's right to defend when being attacked. But how it does so matters. And the protection of civilians is extremely important. I've had difficult conversations with my counterpart on this very issue. Uh, and I'm not the only foreign minister of the G7 having had these conversations, including, of course, the Americans. In those conversations, those difficult conversations you say you've had with your counterpart, for example, in yep. Israel, did you convey the view that you believe or that Canada believes Israel, uh, Israel's response to those awful terror attacks has not been commensurate or amounts to collective punishment or that they have not protected civilians to the degree they should, all of which would amount to a breach of international law? Because you didn't answer the specific question, which was whether it is the government's view that Israel has breached international law, and thus that informs the vote you took at the UN. Well, there will be, of course, a lot of work being done by different organizations on fact-finding, and of course, we will hold uh, perpetrators accountable, and especially, of course, Hamas. Uh, and I've been clear on this. On the question of having these difficult uh, conversations, the protection of civilians, of course, Vashi. Of course, we've been having these conversations. I've had it with my counterpart. I've had it also uh, with uh, many colleagues. And we have many statements of the G7 calling for the protection of civilians. But does that mean, de facto, you believe civilians are not being protected? That Israel is not doing everything it can to avoid hurting or killing civilians? Well, we, you've heard what the G7 has mentioned, which is, of course, the protection of civilians and the respect of international humanitarian law needs to, be re, uh, the, needs to be at the core of Israel's reaction. And why do we say it? We've said it because we believe that more needs to be done. And indeed, no, So you don't believe that they're doing everything they can to protect civilians? I think that more needs to be done. We're at, now, at this point, nearly at 19,000 civilians, mainly women and children, 70% being women and children, that have been... Uh, that, that have died. And so you see in the statement that has been signed by us, by Australia, and also by New Zealand, that we call for that. And we also believe that um, you know, Hamas as a terrorist organization uh, is a threat to Israel. It is definitely a threat to the region. It is a threat to the world. And so that's why we want to make sure that as we continue the diplomatic conversations, about peace and stability in the region, they can't be at the table. They can't be part of the future governance of Gaza. Israel, though, says it's in a fight for its existence. You recognize that Israel has a right of to course. defend its existence. Yeah. 
is it your view? I, I'm still a little confused. You, you want them to do more to protect civilians. They argue that they are and that this is them defending their existence, defending themselves against a terror attack. Do you not think that is the case? I profoundly believe that as a state, they have to do what is absolutely necessary to abide by international law. And we will continue to have these tough conversations. And that's why we sent a clear message at the UN this week. I wanted to also ask you about the feasibility. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, your, your efforts to pursue and help uh, the region pursue a two-state mm -hmm. solution. Uh, the ambassador of Israel to the UK most recently in an interview this week said it's impossible, said that, that you know Israel is not in favor of a two-state solution. Uh, there are members of Prime Minister Netanyahu's cabinet who have expressed similar sentiments, perhaps even taking it further at points. I looked at the most recent public opinion polling of both Palestinians and Israelis. Only about a third of them support at this point a two-state solution. Do you actually believe one is feasible? There's no other choice. And there's no other path. And uh, we need to have a constructive government in Israel that believes in the two-state solution. And we need to have the right Palestinian voices, which are not Hamas, that believe in it. Um, it's been 30 years that uh, we've been talking about it. But there's been a lot of actions to undermine it, including on both sides. And I think as Western leaders, we have to reckon that we haven't ha done a good job enough to bring this solution to the table. Talking about it, but not enough actions. So Do I you think the possibility of it though, after what has occurred over the last two months, is diminished even relative to where it was prior to the start, prior to Hamas's initial attack. You know what, Vashi, I think the contrary. Really? I Why? think I think because this this conflict is so difficult for Israel, so difficult for the Palestinians, so difficult for the world not only in Canada, because we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of Islamophobia, and just the rise of tension. But that's the case here. That's the case in Europe. That's the case south of a border. That's the case in Arab countries. We are in amidst an international security crisis. So we need to take a chance on peace. You mentioned for peace to have a chance, Hamas cannot be at the table for those discussions. Iran funds and arms Hamas. Yeah. Why does your government refuse to list the IRGC as a terrorist entity? So I think just back going back on Hamas, um, it is also very important that Hamas lay down its weapons. That's also part of our approach when it comes to Hamas. Uh, when it comes to Iran, we know that Iran is states, a state sponsor of terror. Um, and because there's clear links between their different proxies, including, uh, of course, we know Hamas. Um, uh, that being said, we have one of the most stringent and, uh, and, and tough approach in the world when it comes to Iran. But I'm committed to working particularly with the Iranian community and uh, particularly also with the PS752 families, which I've been in touch with a lot uh, on this issue because I know that the, f the, the, the community is fearful of the RGC. Yeah, they are very much. And, yeah. and it's, it's actually their... Um, their conversations with me, their ask of me informing the question to you about why your government has, in the years even since PS752, but now, especially in light of what's happened in the Middle East, refused to list them as a terrorist entity. You, in 2018, voted on a motion in favor, in Parliament, in the House of Commons, to do just that. Five years later, you're the person who could make it happen, yeah. and you're not. 
the community feels your government has not ever given them a specific answer about why not. Can you provide one right now? I think that we have to work on the best tools to do it. I think that we have to meanwhile continue to uh, assure the, the, the protection of our diplomats, our military that can be in the region. And that's why I had a very good conversation with key uh, Iranian uh, community uh, leaders here in Canada over the last weeks in Ottawa and we'll do more in the coming year on this issue. Does that mean that you're worried about retaliation in Iran if you were to do list the IRGC? I can't comment on that but what I can tell you when it comes to diplomacy reciprocity is always an issue but that being said what I can tell you is we have the right have the right tools to address this issue and I'm committed to working with my colleagues at public safety at justice on developing the right tools. Does that mean that you have not ruled out listing it as a terrorist entity? Clearly, we will always have one of the toughest approach against Iran in the world. I don't know what that means. I know that you've done a lot of things that I wouldn't intimate that you haven't because you've done a ton of sanctions. There are still, according to Global News, 700 people with ties to the regime in Canada. What I'm telling and, you and you're is not, that... But you're it, not saying whether or not you... You're, you've, I'm just asking if you've ruled no, no, it out no, or not. No, of course, Vashi, and I understand your question. What I'm telling you is that we've done a lot, but we can do more and we'll do more. I take so that. I'll have more to say in the coming weeks on so this So I take issue. that it's not impossible. I'm telling you that, of course, we'll be working on the with the community on this, and I think that we have to be creative to develop new approaches and new tools that would permit government to do what is needed. Okay, Minister, I'll leave it there. I appreciate <laughs> your time as always. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Rashi. Thank you. When we come back, making waves? Why is the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy sounding an alarm over his fleet's readiness or lack thereof? Is he concerned about looming defense budget cuts? Vice Admiral Angus Topshi is with me next. Don't go anywhere. federal government is heading into the new year still without its long-promised defense policy review. That review, which will set long-term goals for the Canadian military, was first announced back in the spring of 2022, but has clearly faced delays. The update is much anticipated as the military deals with ongoing and severe personnel shortages, as well as aging equipment. The wait for it also comes as the feds look to cut nearly $1 billion over several years from the defense budget as part of its spending reduction plan. Colleagues and shipmates, the RCN faces some very serious challenges right now that could mean we fail to meet our forced posture readiness commitments in 2024 and beyond. Recently, the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy released this unprecedented video highlighting the Navy is in a quote critical state because it's understaffed and resource stretched. And that commander, Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, is with us now. Hi, Vice Admiral. Good to meet you and good to have you here in studio. Thanks very much. Thank I wanted to start off and ask about the video that, that you put out because <laughs> you know that, that it, it drew a lot of interest and a lot of reaction. And I'm wondering from your vantage point what the impetus for releasing it was. So the goal was to communicate internally to the Navy. We're going through a tough period right now. We've got to make a number of changes internally, and it was really a call to action to my team to sort of say, look, we've got to focus on these things. We've shown in the past that we can get through these difficult periods, so we need to do so again, and there's some key measures we need to take to do that. Was there any notice provided to the government or to the ministry that you would be putting that message out? Um, the government was well aware of the message. It's not. It's okay. completely consistent with everything that I've been communicating throughout. I feel as though this minister, the previous minister, have both listened and respected to the views that we have. And it's a matter of, you know, the Navy needs to be able to continue to deliver for Canada, and this is how we're going to get about doing it. Do you feel that, it, that the Navy's ability to do so is currently jeopardized? It is challenged. We're short people. 
we're short about 20% of people, and so we really need to focus on attracting, recruiting, and training the best Canada has to offer. We have some great opportunities within the Navy. I think it's a great life. It's taken me around the world to every continent except Antarctica. Um, we have adventures every day, and we have to serve the country with a real purpose. So I think it's a great opportunity. Unfortunately, we just, we're not getting in front of enough Canadians to, to get them to see the, the benefits and the opportunities that come with serving in the Navy. Given the, the sort of uh, severity of the issue and the degree to which you are short, do you anticipate that personnel problems could be fixed in time for delivery, for example, of the new ships that we are anticipating? Yeah, so one of the things that's in the video is a talk about how we're gonna reshape our entire focus on human resources, right? So how we divide up all of the jobs and tasks within the Navy into our various different occupations, how we do all of our training from initial entry training through to the 10 to 15 year mark in a career. How do we make sure that we can accelerate that as quickly as possible to get the sailors that we need at the levels of experience that we need, but to do that in a manner that's safe and ensures that they are fully qualified and ready for the jobs they need to take on. Do I take from that that you do think it's possible to have those ships properly manned, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I do. Uh, it is. So it's not a small task, and it begins by making sure we bring in enough people. And so we need at least 1,200 people to join the Navy every year. And we've launched the Naval Experience Program, which is a one-year program. It's kind of like a, a paid internship, $42,000 to join the Navy, get a sense of everything the Navy has to offer do the regular eight weeks of basic training followed by four weeks of Navy specific training and then an exposure to everything on both coasts in Canada, all of the different jobs and to see if that's the right fit for someone. And at the same time, we get to look at those people who have joined and see if they're the right fit for us. Are their values and ethics aligned with ours? Um, so we've got 100 people recruited through that program so far. We haven't hit the one year mark where we'll really start to see how many of them are interested in continuing to serve, but we're hoping to keep about 80% of them. So 100 people out of the 1,200 that you need every year, what else would you recommend to fill that gap? So the Canadian Forces Recruiting Centre is still the bulk of our recruiting. Yeah. So they're still trying to deliver the 1,200 people that we need. The Naval Experience Program is just an, uh, a pilot project to see if there's other ways of attracting people. And, but so what, I guess what other way, I'm asking sort of against the backdrop of the, the, the stuff that's in place now yeah. isn't cutting it. So what more would you like to see done outside of that one program? So I, I think we need to look internally, and we are looking internally to make sure our processes are as efficient as possible. So some of the things, our common enrollment medical standards, so the, the medical uh, grade you need to reach to join the military is actually higher than what you need to continue to serve in the military. So that's one of the things that the Surgeon General and his team are looking at to make sure that it reflects where we're at right now has it reflected the current changes in medical practice? So there are some things that we assessed a while back were not consistent with service that actually we probably can manage. They're not the same sort of chronic conditions today that they were in the past. So someone who has those probably could continue to serve. You, you mentioned also in this video that it isn't unique to the Navy that you're dealing with issues around personnel, right? That the Armed, Force, that the armed Forces as well as the Air Forces are, are facing similar issues. We've been waiting almost two years, I think it's 20 months now, for a defense policy review, which is in part, we've been told, going to articulate uh, more specifics around a strategy to address that. Have you been, has your input been uh, given to that? Like, what, what do you think we should and can anticipate out of that whenever it does come? So I think the defense policy update will re reset what the government's position is on defense and what exactly they want us to really focus on. The bigger things are a lot of these issues we need to already be addressing ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have these levers within our control within the Canadian Armed Forces. And so we need to be making sure that we're using all of those, that we're changing the way we do business to attract and, tr and recruit Canadians faster. The minister was asked about your video, uh, Defense Minister Bill Blair, and he said that uh, the exact quote is, I wouldn't define the situation is dire at all. How do you respond to that? 
So if you re remember, the first part of the video is that we may fail to meet. Our intention is to continue to meet our commitments under what we call the force posture and readiness, the number of ships and platforms that the Canadian Navy is required to have ready and be able to deploy annually. Our goal is to meet those. The point of the video is to say, look, there's a couple of things. If they don't break right, we're going to struggle to do that. So we need to make sure that we're focused intently on those things and we continue to deliver. Has there been a year in recent memory where you've been able to recruit 1,200 people to join the Navy? No. So why do you think it's possible going forward? Because we're trying new things. So we are reforming our recruiting approach. The Naval Experience Program is showing us that we're attracting different people. And so one of the things we've seen, it used to be that people were walking into a recruiting center, only 6% of people expressed any desire to join the Navy. Now we're seeing 20% of the people walking into recruiting centers are saying they're interested in the Navy. We used to attract somewhere around 6 or 7% visible minorities and Indigenous Canadians. Now we're attracting 20%. So we know we're tapping into new groups. And I think we're going to continue to see that. So we just need to get the word out that this is a great opportunity for Canadians. And are you convinced, you mentioned you have the levers. Are, am I to infer from that, that that you feel like the Navy on its own or the armed forces on its own, the military on its own, separate from government investment, government initiative, can accomplish what you're setting out? So you know, no one would ever say no to more money, but the thing is that we have a lot of things that we can control ourselves, and until we've exhausted everything we can do, uh, we need to do all of those things. More money is one thing, less money is what the, the armed forces is confronted with now. What is your, uh, your thought, what are your thoughts on that? So it depends on how you look at it. So the capital budget is actually growing. We're in the midst of the largest recapitalization in the Canadian Navy's history in peacetime. And so the overall defense budget is actually going up. It's the various different aspects of it are being reduced. So you don't feel any pinch? So uh, again, I can always use more money, but the thing is that my job is to take the resources I'm given and meet the requirements of Canada with those resources. Okay, Vice Admiral, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. All right, thank you. After a short break on question period, hits and misses. Now that the House of Commons has wrapped for the year, we're going to look at what the federal parties did well and maybe didn't do so well in 2023. The Sunday strategy session with Kathleen Moncori tonight and Scott Reed is up next. Welcome back. The House of Commons has risen for the holiday break with MPs not set to return back here to Ottawa until the end of January. What defined each federal party in 2023? For much of this year, housing and the cost of living crisis dominated debate on Parliament Hill. Facing slumping support, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government have tried to focus more on those issues through a cabinet shuffle, more housing measures and threats to grocery store chains to stabilize food prices. The Tories, meanwhile, focused on the cost of living early in the year and saw their lead on the Liberals and public opinion polls reach the double digits by late fall. The NDP's deal to keep the Liberals in power is still going strong with the party's dental care policy front and centre, but the NDP does remain roughly where it was in those same polls a year ago. So what did the parties get right this year and where did they stumble? Our Sunday strategy session is here. Kathleen Monk is a former NDP strategist and director of communications to the late Jack Layton. Corey Tanike was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And Scott Reed is a CTV News political analyst and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hello, everyone. Nearly at the end Whoa. here. Uh, Scott, I'm going to start with you. We're going to go through what the parties, we're going to start off with what you think the parties did right. And we'll ask you to pick what you think the Liberals did right this year. Well, I've got the easiest job of all three of us because there's so few options to pick from. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I'll start with the cabinet shuffle, which I thought was a bust in terms of re-energizing the government and resetting its agenda, which was its professed purpose. But one important thing emerged from it. 
They put Sean Fraser in charge of housing. Housing is right at the center of the storm over cost of living and affordability. And since his appointment, Sean Fraser has been the bright light of this cabinet and this government. He is the energizer bunny making announcements almost on a weekly, daily basis sometimes on housing. He's brought real credibility and real uh, creativity to the file. And I would say that he is a bright spot where they need a bright spot. So that would be my choice for what the Liberals got right in 2023. But there ain't a whole heck of a lot to choose from. Corey, do you agree with the sentiment around Minister Frazier? And then I'll get your take for what you think the Tories did right. I think he's certainly been a, a bright spot uh, in in uh, the Liberal team uh, this fall, uh, but you know I agree with Scott. It's you know <laughs> it's it's a dim light uh, when that's what you're pointing to because uh, I I think the larger framing issues are, are are really where they've been losing the battle and 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 this is one element of I think a larger narrative. But they they really got to piece the rest of it together too. But but certainly a bright spot. I would agree with that. Um, in terms of the Conservatives, I think they did a number of things right. Uh, most importantly, they got out ahead of the Liberals in terms of branding uh, their leader and, and introducing him to Canadians in, a, in, I think, a very positive way with a very effective ad campaign. You've seen a lift in the Conservative numbers, I think, as a result. And I think the other element is uh, uh, almost laser-like focused on affordability uh, issues. Going into the summer, uh, you know, sort of, sort of probably more starting in the summer, to be honest, uh, and uh, uh, and then a focus on the carbon tax. You know, they took advantage of some, I think, missteps around the removal of, of home heating fuel in isolation in Atlantic Canada. I think that was a big miss on the Liberal part, and, and the Conservatives certainly capitalized on it. So I think that focus on the economy and, and the introduction of uh, Polyev through their advertising campaign are, are two really big bright spots for them. Kathleen, your thoughts on the, the big ad buy that, that started over the summer, the framing of, of the Tories leader, and then what you think the NDP did right this year? Yeah, for sure. I think Corey's right. Uh, the Conservatives did have a masterful summer campaign in terms of not only the ad rollout, but frankly, their party discipline is something that all parties should pay attention to and in terms of how their caucus sticks together on issues that could potentially be wedged against them and their message consistency is something that is admirable and I, I wish other parties would consider adopting. Um, in terms of uh, the NDP, what they did right, um, I think it's really delivering for Canadians which sounds like a message track but I want to point out that things that they have done whether it's you know the GST rebates on groceries or particularly the first expansion of healthcare with the dental care plan. Uh, this is something that most governments don't get to achieve. Uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of dental care, and frankly, uh, governments of all stripes have not been able to expand healthcare for some time. So, for have the fourth party do that in this house is pretty admirable. Scott, I'll get your take on uh, the NDP policy wins, and then if you could uh, flag what you think the Liberals did wrong this year. Well, I remain a big skeptic on the whole uh, NDP will harvest the credit from these uh, gains, and I'm not even convinced that some of these gains are gains. I do think that the dental program is going to make a real difference in people's lives. And once we get past the partisan politics of it now, 10, 20, 15 years, 50 years from now, I think it's going to be a, a, a difference maker and something important. Um, in terms of what the Liberals got wrong, I've got to sort of pull a page out of Corey's book. It's the reverse of Corey's uh, uh, answer about the Conservatives, and that is that the Liberals needed to define Pierre Polyev out of the blocks. They needed to tell Canadians who this new leader of the opposition was, where he comes from, what he's all about, and they needed to do it on their terms. 
They did not do an ad buy like the conservatives. They did not get ahead of the conservatives. They didn't even get behind the conservatives. They didn't even follow the conservatives. There's been, to this date, no effort to define Pierre Polyev other than social media and holding scrums in the House of Commons. It isn't working. It didn't work. Um, and it gave him a huge head start in terms of defining himself. And that's what really kickstarted those polls. So that was a big miss, like a monster big miss of 2023. Uh, Corey, your thoughts on, I mean, they, they are just doing it on social media right now. They are doing it in the House of Commons, but they certainly have started doing more in those arenas than they had previously. And in some, you know, isolated polls that we've seen so far, we don't know if it's going to stick around. There is a, a bit of a, an effect of that. Yeah, well, it's better to do something than nothing, although I would say what they're doing is pretty tepid. Like the reality of of uh, most people's lives and how they consume media right now is uh, that, you, you know, you really have to go to folks through paid advertising if you want to reach those shoulder voters, the voters who are uh, the lowest levels of engagement who often decide election campaigns. And, and they're not out looking for political news. you got to really uh, inject it into their feed, so to speak. And so, you know, things that you're doing that are, are not backed up by dollars, I'm just very skeptical about their efficacy in, in, in a modern political marketing world. So, you know, I, I think it's a big mess. I agree that's, you know, that combined with a lack of a cohesive narrative that everybody's on. You know, you we've seen several examples over the past year where you've got, you know, the prime minister out saying that you know, our uh, our fiscal situation is the strongest in the world. And then you got the Minister of Finance saying, but we need belt tightening because it's maybe not so great. And then you've got somebody else saying, you know, open the checkbook, we're going to spend, spend, spend. So I <clears throat> I think there's a lack of consistency in, in narrative there. Um, in terms of the Conservatives, I, I think the only, the only you know, partial marks I take off their scorecard this year is I think they got a little too focused on the foreign electoral in, in, interference storyline in the spring. And you saw their numbers sort of flatline for a few months when when that was sucking up all the oxygen in the room. And while you know that's clearly an important issue uh, from a substantive point of view, it's not an issue that's really top of mind for Canadians who are worried about cost of living pressures and and renegotiating their mortgage or or things of that nature, which just on that on that triage go to the very top right away. So. When they got back on those subjects, combined with the advertising campaign, I think it really took off for them. But, you know, a bit of, a bit of loss of focus uh, from the regular folks towards the Ottawa bubble in the spring. And, and thankfully, they put that behind them. It's interesting, Kathleen, I'll get you to react to that and then talk about the NDP. Somebody was pointing out to me that the Tories and the Liberals were within two points of each other in May. Mm -hmm. uh, after five months of that story dominating the headlines, mm -hmm. once the headlines moved off, the polls did too. Yeah, they did. But I actually think that, uh, Corey, I mean, uh, you know, if you're looking at the full year, when you want to say where the Conservatives went wrong, I think I would take the points out or mark the report card down on the last three weeks. I think really the last three weeks, a half November and, and into December, they really stumbled with that vote on against the Ukraine trade deal. They kind of lost their focus. Maybe they ran out of steam in terms of, you know, the shenanigans in the House of the last few weeks, and we've seen them drop. We've seen a nine-point swing just in the last few weeks where that largely seems to be attributed to that stumble, strategic stumble on Ukraine. So I think I would say if you're looking back on the year for the Conservatives, that's where I said they kind of fell off their, their game and kind of got distracted. In terms of New Democrats, it, it builds on something that Scott said earlier. I think the policy is right around dental care and obviously all the other policies that they're working forward with the confidence and supply agreement. But are they getting noticed, New Democrats? I think that's where they're going wrong. 
can they actually get the credit for all the work that they're doing? You know, frankly, the government's better at taking credit and the conservatives are better at opposing and uh, screaming at the government. And so where does this kind of uh, new democratic voice uh, fit in? And they need to do a better job of that and putting their leader out in the window more so. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. And we will regroup next week for our final show of the season. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Scott Reed, Corey Tonight, and Kathleen Monk. Coming up, a shifting position. Canada votes in favor of a UN resolution that calls for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, but doesn't mention Hamas. Will there be political fallout over that move that's been both denounced and praised? The Scrum with Marika Walsh, J.D. Belvals, and Robert Benzie will be here next. Don't go anywhere. Turning back to our top story today and what's followed after Canada's decision to support a non-binding resolution at the UN's General Assembly that calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It's the first time Canada has used the word ceasefire in relation to the conflict in the Middle East and goes against years of supporting Israel at the UN. But the push to call for a ceasefire has been growing for weeks domestically and the decision now has led to both support and condemnation. I'm here with the Scrum to talk more about that. Joelle Denis Belvance is the Ottawa Bureau Chief at La Presse. Marika Walsh is a senior political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And Robert Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief at the Toronto Star. Hi, everybody. Good, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, JD, I'll start with you. Even Liberal Caucus isn't entirely united behind the position that the government put forth this week. Exactly. Uh, and you could see that this uh, uh, conflict that is so far away from Canada is having domestic implications. And the Prime Minister was in Vancouver on Friday meeting leaders from the Muslim community and the Jewish community to try to build bridges. And uh, it, it, I think it was about to be expected that this government would take that position eventually because the pressure was still immense on the side of the, the Liberal caucus. And also at Cabinet, I heard that the discussion was intense about that, that um, Milani Jolie took uh, that very seriously and she brought it up a few occasions with the Prime Minister personally to convince him to uh, change the position of Canada. It's interesting because in advance of the vote that was taken, Marika, at the UN, the Prime Minister, in conjunction with the Prime Ministers in Newfoundland, uh, Newfoundland my goodness, in New Zealand and, and um, Australia, put out a statement sort of equivocating that position but prefacing it with a lengthy condemnation of Hamas and a call for them to lay down arms and to release the hostages. That part is entirely absent from what was voted on at the UN. Do you think the difference there is significant politically for them? It's significant politically for their support among Jewish groups and, and sort of Jewish communities who are very upset, including liberal MPs in the caucus who are very upset. Many this week said, you know, they understood, for example, that statement that was released in conjunction with New Zealand and Australia, but it is not consistent with what they voted on in the UN. And I think the US ambassador in an interview with you earlier this week said that it was considered a unilateral ceasefire what was voted for at the UN. So the fact that it is not actually the policy that Canada has is I think part of the reason why people are on some sides very upset that they voted for that UN ceasefire. You know, one liberal told me this week, it seems like the Liberal Party is willing to fold on these key principles that they've held so long in order to hold on to their vote base. On the flip side, I'm hearing that this is actually something that the Prime Minister really believes in and that it's closer to what he actually personally feels. Which is really interesting. And I think also, Rob, informed by the duration of the war, right? It, it, I mean, the position was, was one thing at the outset. Um, in the attack on Israel, the terror attack was horrifying to everyone who watched, but just watching it unfold and the, 
the scale of the casualties, particularly in Gaza, has to be informing, I think, the evolution of position here, too. Yeah, I mean, certainly it has evolved. And uh, I mean, the one thing, though, it's a large, I mean, it, it's, an, it's a non-binding resolution. It is symbolic because, of course, as former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said a few weeks ago, there was a ceasefire in place on October 6th, mm -hmm. and Hamas broke that ceasefire. Hamas is, of course, uh, a designated terrorist organization. The, on ter the uh, federal government uh, designated it that in 2002 uh, when uh, Jean Chrétien was prime minister. So it's, it's I think, it, this, uh, uh, Marika's right, this is about domestic politics and problems within uh, their voting coalition, the Liberals' voting coalition. But the divisions that you see within the Liberal caucus, you see those in office places, you see them on university campuses, you see it uh, on the streets of Toronto and, and Montreal and Ottawa. It's, I mean, it's, there, this is a very divisive and polarizing issue. And I think this symbolic move may, I don't know, maybe helps Trudeau with some communities, but it ticks off others. And I, and I mean, it's one of those things, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. My sense, though, internally within Liberal Caucus and, and JD, please do tell me if you have a different sense, is that there are um, there are there is a group of people who is opposed to, to what happened this week, but there's a larger group it seems yes. that actually supports it and had been pushing through open letters and yep. behind the scenes to, for the government to eventually take this position. Exactly, I think it's about two to one. Uh, the proportion, I would say that twenty, I think twenty more MPs uh, signed that letter, twenty-five, and it was signed also by NDP MPs. So it's, it it goes also beyond the Liberal Party and include its legislative partner in the House of Commons, the NDP. And I think it's a reflection of how divisive that issue is among Canadians uh, as much. And it reminded me, uh, if I just can point this out, I wrote a feature uh, a few years ago that, that showed that Omar Al-Gaba, who is from Muslim community, made a point of having a Christmas uh, supper, inviting Jim, the late Jim Carr, who is Jewish, just to show that Canadians can talk to each other, although they come from different backgrounds. Mr. Uh, Jim Carr is no longer with us, but I think his presence would be needed in Canada right now, just to show that it's still possible to talk to each other, even though we're not from the same origin. And that, I think, was a, a beautiful story that I wrote, and Mr. Omar Gabra was the leader in trying to set this in Ottawa. The, the only thing I would add to that is, I actually feel, Marikin, and maybe you have a different sense, that though there, the divisions that exist in society also exist within Parliament, so far compared to a whole lot of other things that happen in Parliament, the discourse has not been particularly disrespectful. And I, and I know some of those caucus members that you reference now, even for example, would meet at least in the first six weeks of this war quite regularly mm -hmm. in Karina Gould's office to continue talking through it. Now, I don't know if the UN vote changes necessarily, the, the, could change, and it maybe mm -hmm. does, the nature of that. But even across party lines, it hasn't been the most antagonistic issue. They have managed to talk their way through it to some degree. To some degree, and to some degree, I think it's because all parties are in the same position as the Liberals to an extent, mm -hmm. that, they're, that those divisions exist in all parties. Clearly, we see from the Angus Reid polling that the Liberal, the, sorry, the Conservative supporters have more people who do not support a ceasefire, but it still is a divisive issue for them. And we saw, for example, this week, the Conservatives did not bring up this call, even though they're against the, the idea of a ceasefire call. They didn't bring this up in question period as something to push the government on. So I think that's a sign that it's not, they're not looking to make hay on this issue. They know how sensitive it is. They know just the sheer catastrophe of the pictures coming out of Gaza make it so personal and so sensitive. And there's just other issues that they are way more comfortable pushing the government on. It will, though, be really interesting to see the way in which, Robin, last word to you on this, the government 
does continue to navigate this as the war becomes even more protracted? Because everything you hear, particularly, let's say, from the IDF or Prime Minister Netanyahu is that the, it will be protracted, that their, their end goal is one that, that cannot happen in a short span of time. Exactly. It is so fraught, Vashi, and it's upsetting, and there is no easy answer, and nothing that happens in Canada is going to have any impact one way or the other uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, I mean, you have 18,000 dead so far uh, there, most women and children, and unfortunately more people are going to die before this conflict is over. And uh, I don't think Hamas actually cares that much about the, the Palestinian population. Uh, they, are, they have said before that, it's, they're, that they're the UN's problem, the civilian population, not their problem, even though they've been the, the government of, uh, of Gaza you know, for almost 20 years now. So it's, it's, a really, it's a really difficult situation. You have to feel for the people caught in the middle. They're the collateral damage, just as those 1,200 Israelis on October 7th who were minding their own business at the music festival or the kibbutzes that they lived on. Uh, and all of a sudden, they are victims of something uh, that's far bigger than any of them. And, and it's, it's just, it's such an unfair and awful situation. And, there is, you know, it's easy on social media to say, oh, well, hashtag, here's the easy answer. Well, there isn't an easy answer. And hashtag ceasefire now is not also an easy answer because uh, if, if Hamas regroups, they've said they will yeah. attack again. So we're going to be ba right back here. Yeah, no easy answers for sure. Thank you for the discussion today, though. I really appreciate it. J.D. Belvance, Rob Benzi, and Marika Walsh coming up on Question Period, the three things I'll be watching for this week. Welcome back to Question Period on this Sunday. There are three things I'm watching for this week, and here's what they are. First of all, fallout from the vote at the UN over the ceasefire, and really more significantly, actually, the U.S.'s push on Israel to lower what President Joe Biden called the intensity of the indiscriminate bombing. That's what he characterized it as. We'll see how that plays out next week. Statistics Canada on the domestic front will release the CPI, the rate of inflation, for November on Tuesday. Very curious to see if inflation does continue to cool down. On the same day, I'm also watching for the government to release its final zero emission vehicle sales regulations. That's going to prescribe annual electric vehicle sales from 2026 to 2035. Those are key dates because at 2035, that's when the government has mandated that those sales have to be 100% of the cars sold. And so the announcement this week is going to have a big impact on such a crucial sector for this country. I'll be watching for that. That does do it for us this week here at Question Period. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Vashi Capellas. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend.